We're going to be in uh, the Gospel of Matthew this morning, chapter 28. Looking at the well, the well-known passage, the Great Commission. I begin reading in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 28. It says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So read through this passage, there are what I would describe as some concerning concerning pieces, some concerning bits. The first of which is, of course, the fact that uh, here we are approaching the end of Matthew's Gospel, and still in verse 17 we read that some of the disciples still had doubts. That's a concerning thing, at least it is for me, and I believe for you as we read through it, seems like we should be moving past that at this point. Seems like at this point in the story, things should be wrapping up a little better. What's more concerning, perhaps, even than the expression in the recording of the doubts of the disciples, is how little gospel comes after it, how little we're given to reconcile it, to explain it. There's no, there's really no story at all. There's no more character development. There's no more uh, time for a change of heart. There's barely anything, just a few short verses. And in fact, those verses don't really appear to address that verse at all. And certainly, if you've heard this passage preached or read, as I'm sure you have, we usually are focusing on verse 19. That's the famous verse. That's the verse that we put on, on posters and banners and hang up, and, and especially in the missions office, but everywhere around the church. None of them really even seem to address it. So what... What do we do? What do we do with that? What do we do with verse 17? Well, the first thing we need to remind ourselves of is the fact that we have four Gospels. Four Gospels. And it would make sense if the purpose of the Gospels was just to give us all the information as efficiently as possible. Where's my efficiency people out there? like doing things the most efficient way, right? I, I, for example, hate driving the same place twice in one day. I, you can ask my wife, I will do almost anything, and it sometimes causes problems because I won't go back somewhere else. I struggle to go back. I, I like efficiency. I really don't like doing the same thing twice. And yet we have four Gospels, and 
many of the stories throughout the four narratives are the same. In fact, many of them are word for word, almost the same. So we're reminded that if efficiency was the goal, if pure information transfer was the goal, then we would have a compilation, we would have one gospel that was with all of the stories combined, all of the narratives, just everything in one, start to finish, chronological, all the facts. But that's not the text we have, and we know that, of course, because we are given four Gospels that give us four perspectives. They were all written for different purposes and audiences. The same purpose, of course, to illuminate Jesus the Christ and to give us the picture of who he was, the significance of his coming and what he did, but they were written to different audiences, Jews and Gentiles. We have the synoptics of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and of course we have the Gospel of John, which has so much more imagery, it's more of a, a, it's more of a theology than a history book. They're all written for a specific purpose, and as such, the details that each Gospel writer includes are important for the point they're trying to make. Because they don't try to just tell us the story of, of Easter and the resurrection and what comes after just to make sure we know that it happened, but they all point to a certain significance of it, a different significance of it, a different aspect, a different piece. And so if we're going to understand anything about these closing remarks that Matthew leaves us with, it's important to remember whose gospel we're reading. And there are times when we want to go back and forth between gospels to, to figure out what was going on in stories, but we also need to be very careful with that, because if there's a detail that Matthew left out, didn't include, it's because it didn't support purpose. Not that it was wrong, not that he didn't believe it, not that he's making something up, but that's not where he's trying to get us to look. So we look at we look at what each individual writer is illuminating. You've perhaps heard the story of um, the, the two or three blind men that all encountered an elephant for the first time, right? And they all encounter different parts, and one finds a leg and says, this is something that's like a tree, and the other finds the trunk and says, this is something that's, that's, that's like, a, like a snake, right? And, and the recognition that as they explore this animal from different sides and they have different perspectives, they have very different experiences. You really, to understand the elephant, need all of those. And so the gospel writers often will each illuminate one part of the gospel story to focus on that. Well, and, and this is especially true for Matthew's account of the resurrection and the Great Commission. There are details that Matthew does not include, not because he didn't believe them or know about them, but because that wasn't the story he was trying to tell. So here's what's significant, what's interesting about the Gospel of Matthew. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 28, we won't read the whole thing right now, but if you go back to the beginning and read through, you may notice that there are a number of things missing. And this is really true of the Easter story more than anything else. And back on when we uh, were celebrating Easter, I actually went through and I made this kind of diagram, this graph of of all of the details of the Easter story. And then I went through with a highlighter and I highlighted 
in orange, everything that happened in every story, and then in yellow, things that happened in only three and, and on down the list. And what I found was there were only two details that occurred in every account of the Easter story. And if you want to know what they were, it was that there was an angel or a man that was an angel present, and that Mary was there. I don't remember if we talked about this. If we did, it's just a reminder. But there's very few details that occur in every single story, and we find that here. What we find is we read through Matthew's account from the beginning of chapter 28 and the resurrection through this, the Great Commission, is there's no record of any questioning. From verse 1 to verse 15, which is the which is the Easter into the report of the guard, right before we go into this Great Commission passage, there's no, there's no doubt, there's no question, there's no, they didn't believe the women, there isn't any, any unrecognition. We don't have the road to Emmaus and the disciples that saw Jesus and didn't recognize him. What we have is the women come to the tomb and they're told not to be afraid and they say, go and tell his disciples. They departed, uh, and they had fear. So that's another sermon. And great joy, and they ran to tell the disciples. And they, on the way, they meet Jesus, and they take hold of his feet, and they worship him. And then Jesus says, go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And then the next thing we have in the story of the disciples is that the disciples went to Galilee. So the women are instructed to go and encouraged not to fear. And they go, and they meet Jesus, and he says to go tell the disciples to go to Galilee, and they tell them, and and there's no record of any discussion or the disciples going to the tomb because they didn't fully believe the women, and there's no need to touch Jesus and feel, and all none of that. They just obey. And again, that doesn't mean that Matthew is is denying the existence of those events. He's just showing us something else. And what I would what I would say, how I would interpret that, is that if he's not bringing up those details, it's because he doesn't want us to get distracted by them. Do you have anybody in your life that there are certain topics you know not to bring up with them if you're in a hurry? And it's not a bad thing, and in fact, many times you may love to talk to that person about that thing, and I've only been here two months, but many of you probably have at least five on the list for me in that. I have a lot of things I'm enthusiastic about, and that's fine. You can always tell me that you don't have time to learn this much about cast iron footwork. It's the same thing. We, We know there are certain things that can be distracting. And what I see in Matthew, in his removal of all of that from the story, is an awareness in him that we really latch on to the doubt stories. We really latch on to those stories of of weakness and difficulty. and, And in everything he tells us, leading up to verse 16, there's no... There's no learning about the weakness of the disciples. There are other Gospels for that, but it's not here. Which makes it even more interesting that in verse 17, Jesus appears to the disciples and it says that they worshipped him, but some 
doubt. Now, if you read and if you research, there's plenty of theories that are put forth out as to what that's referencing. Um, one theory is that Paul discusses um, in his letters this time when Jesus appeared to over 500 believers before he ascended. Some people say, well, maybe you know, it would make sense that that's what's happening, that Paul and that discussion about the 500 is referencing this passage, and so the 11 worshipped in chances are if there were 500 others that some of those statistically it's probable that some of those 500 would doubt and so it all makes sense but of course there's no there's really no direct implication of that in the passage it said go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee which is language that kind of implies the 11 and, and it, we begin in verse 16 and it says now the 11 mention any 500. So that explanation doesn't doesn't really help us that much. So what do we, what do, we do with this? How could they possibly still be doubting here at the end? Well, in order to have any hope of understanding that, as usual, we find it helpful to read into the language a little bit figure out exactly what we're talking about. The first piece of that is we need to figure out and understand what the doubt is in contrast to. So we have two statements, and the first is that they worshipped him, and the second that is that some doubted. Now I always, because I'm, perhaps because I like to picture things and imagine things, and I'm a kind of a visual type learner, I often when I read passages like this, try to picture what's happening. And whenever I read passages about people just walking up to Jesus in public or just in person and worshiping him, especially in the context of how we most often engage in worship, it just always seems really weird and awkward. Because I, I am inclined to picture someone just walking up to Jesus and they just start looking him in the eyes and singing songs at him. And that just seems like a really odd way to greet someone. And that's, that's honestly what I immediately picture when I read through a passage like this, that, that they're, they go to this hill and Jesus appears and he walks up to them and they just start singing. Which, I guess if they were all doing it together, it wouldn't be nearly as odd, but it just, something about it always, to me, just didn't quite sit right. As you read through the New Testament, as you look into the Greek, what we understand, what we find, is that this word that's used for worship, not that it doesn't mean or can't be used to describe what we do in worship, but more literally, it's really just the act of reverence and lowering oneself. But this word worship really just means to kneel down. Now, in our culture, we don't use kneeling down as really any kind of interpersonal action. Right? We have lots of things that we we do with other people, and we will, you know, we have things like shaking hands, and we have things, um, we have things like saluting, and we have we have actions that we use to 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 say things to other people, but this idea of kneeling is not one that we use, at least not in practice. But we can think of other cultures and other times, this 
idea of devotion and obedience that is given through kneeling. It is the lowering of oneself, it is the surrendering of oneself, and and ultimately, ultimately, that's that's what this is talking about. And so the act of kneeling itself is not necessarily something that is worship of a deity, but in this context and with this word, that, that's what it is. It is worship, but as the simple act of lowering one's self. Which, that's a whole other sermon, and we could talk about that just in the context of our worship and what are we doing. Not that we shouldn't sing, and not that Beth, as our worship leader, is just going to come stand up front and show us what it looks like to kneel down, and then we're going to do it, and we're just going to stay there for 20 minutes, and then I'm going to preach. That would not be good for our knees or for our hearts. But we can talk and probably will sometime about that posture. But he came and they took a posture, probably physically, of, of kneeling. Sitting at his feet, of lowering in the, themselves before them, before him. It was most likely a physical action. Physical action of worship. So that's what they were doing. Another theory that's put forth is that maybe they were split and that some of them worshipped and some of them doubted. But of course the language doesn't support that because it says when they, it says the eleven went, when they saw him, they worshipped. But some doubted. So even the idea of this split even even just in simple English doesn't really hold a lot of water. And also we have to recognize that we always have this tendency, don't we, to make everything black and white. Everything is one or the other. We like that it's simple, it's concrete. We don't like gray areas. So it's easy for us to read into it. Well, there must be some that were just 100% on board and some that were just didn't believe. Not sure why they walked the multiple days journey up to Galilee if they didn't, but we don't see that either. So how do we reconcile this? Why would they worship if they doubted? I, I guess it would make sense that they'd walk all the way up there if they doubted to try and find out for sure, what was, but why would they worship him if they doubted him? You'd think that they would come with doubts, those doubts would be would be put to rest, and then they would worship him. Now this is the part where it's a really good time just to skip down to verse 19 and preach about global missions. We're not going to do that, as I'm sure you've figured out when we look at this word, which is universally translated as doubt, all of your Bibles, every Bible, I, every translation I looked into, and I saw 14 of them, all the big ones, unless you've got some real weird one, then seeing after service, but every translation translate, translates this as doubt. However, when we begin to look back, there are other Ideas. Now, this word 
If you look at it literally, the word used for doubt, it means to be caught between two places. Caught between two places. One way that can be applied is to be caught in your mind between two places. You're not sure if it's this or if it's this. You're at an intersection, you're at a fork in the road, and you can't remember. That way kind of looks right, but that way also looks familiar. Right? You're caught between the two. If you come up to the intersection and you know that this is the way, you don't doubt if you're supposed to turn left. You know you're supposed to turn right. If you're confident in this, that's not doubt. You're not caught between two. You're sure about the one and the other you know is wrong. That's this idea of caught between two in our minds. But there's another way that we can understand the word because it doesn't specify in our minds. It means caught between two, and that can also happen physically. We can be physically caught between doing two different things. Right? We can... We can have this, this whether it's, um, I don't know, some ways that this would come out is when you try to you think of two ways to start a sentence and two words to say to start a sentence, and then they both kind of jumble together and come out of your mouth. Uh, those things happen, right? Or you, you, mix two, uh, you, you mix two phrases together, go to say goodbye, and you say, take luck. Good luck, take physically caught between two. Being physically caught between two things looks like taking a short step, a stuttering in, in your step, not quite sure of where to go. Physically, physically being caught between two is I need to jump over this, this gap. And I start to jump, but I don't really jump quite as far as I'm supposed to which ends up being a lot worse, because then I don't make it, and I fall in the hole. You know, if, well, I don't know if this is super applicable. I don't know how many of you have ever jumped across something, or tried to jump across, or tried to jump across a puddle. That's a, that's a good example that doesn't lead to death. <laughs> don't, we're not going to jump over a canyon. You ever try to jump over a puddle, and you get halfway there, and at the last moment, you think, oh, I don't know if I can make it over, and you slow down, and then drenched. And you realize if I had just committed fully to it, I would have made it over. It's fine. That, that physical caught between I'm jumping and I'm not. Jumping and I'm not. And then... Now, if we're caught between two things mentally, it's referred to as doubt. I'm not doubt this is the right way to go. If we're caught between two things physically, we refer to that as hesitation. I think I'm going to jump, but I can't, can't quite bring myself to do it. And also, if we understand that the word for worship... Because as I just think about it without studying, I think, well, maybe the worship is just, maybe that's more of an attitude. Maybe they showed up and they saw him and they worshipped him 
in in their hearts, in in their devotion, and and just in the the relationship they had with him. But the word is physical. It's a physical word. The word for worship is not describing a feeling of worship, but an action. And so a, a case is made by many scholars, and I read a even a, 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 a doctoral paper on on the idea that. When we translate the word as doubt, we are focusing too much on the mental being caught between two in a verse that is talking about physical worship. Why are we not talking about physically being caught between two? Now, that's supported by the fact that this word is only used one other time in the entire New Testament. One other time. And thankfully, it's used in Matthew. It's used by another author. It's harder to compare those because they might use the word differently. Cindy and I use the word truck differently. In a 10 minute discussion, because she will say pickup truck to refer to a thing with a bed and refer to her SUV as a truck, which to me is just beyond comprehension. So now I always call it a pickup truck, and she always calls it a truck, and we, we accommodate each other well. We'll use words differently, but Matthew is the only one, the only use at once, and it's interesting. It's the word used when Jesus looks at Peter as he begins to sink into the waves and says, why do you doubt? Peter find out of the boat in the middle of the storm. Peter, who had probably seen plenty of grown men drown or heard about grown men who drowned on that lake as he grew up fishing on it, who knew how dangerous it was to jump out of a fishing boat in a storm and stepped out onto the water to go and walk to the man that everyone else thought was a ghost. And he walked on the water through the power of the Spirit, but because of his faith. And he made it some distance towards Jesus before he began to be overwhelmed, began to look to the waves, began to sink. And then Jesus says, why doubt And obviously, it's not black and white. Because he didn't doubt so much that he couldn't walk on the water. Just enough that for a moment he paused. So when we look at our passage in Matthew 28, what we begin to see taking shape is not this split in the disciples, not this what I would say is probably just a little too simple an explanation of maybe 500 other people showed up and some of them doubted so we can just remove the obstacle entirely but some hesitate and I, and I believe I try to be clear about things that are a bit of a judgment call on my part but I, I believe that they all knelt and worshipped 
some of them, when they did it, were still trying to figure it out, were still trying to wrap their heads around it, were still not 100% sure what was happening or what they should be doing, or they were so, they were so, they'd been so trained their entire lives as Jews that worship is for God alone, and you never, never worship a human being. Perhaps that's why they hesitated. Because we know it's hard to shake things we've been taught our entire lives. And if you've grown up and in your 30s or 40s or 70s even, you come to a mental understanding that something you were raised to believe is incorrect about other people or the way you should treat them or the way the world works. You, you make that mental switch and it's so hard to get your actions and your emotions to get in line with that. Perhaps that is what is being experience, but there's some sort of hesitation. And Jesus does nothing about it. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have the words that Jesus spoke to remove their hesitation? So we could write them down and put them in our wallets, or on our mirror, or on the visor in our car to flip down when we're having those days where having trouble. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have the words that Jesus speaks to fix the hesitation for those days where we feel something holding us back? But what does Jesus do? They hesitate. They're nervous. They're unsure. They're struggling just in the act of kneeling down to worship him. What does he do? He tells them that those 11 are responsible to go teach the entire world about who he is. He gives them the most overwhelming, over-the-top, unattainable task in the midst of their hesitation. It says, all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The, word, the term name there, that phrase, of course, in the same way as when you go to DMV to register your car and they say, whose name is the title in? It says, go baptize people. Make them mine. Make them the fathers. Make them the spirits. Bring them into our possession. And by the way, for the last three years, we've just been going after the Jewish people. For the last three years, we've just been going for the people that have been waiting for me to come for thousands of years who had the revelation, who had the law, who had the scriptures, who had the prophets, who should have been lining up to believe. And by the way, that didn't work out so well for me. Not only go and succeed where I, from earthly standards, failed, but go to all those other people 
that hate us, that don't believe like we believe, that don't believe in one God, that don't have any understanding, no foundation to begin to understand the message that you're going to preach, it would have been overwhelming just for him to say, I'm leaving, now you're in charge. Now you're in charge of the people that rejected even me. You're in charge of the people that that crucified me and refused to believe. Go make them believe. That would be overwhelming, but on top of that, he says, go to the entire world. That's how he responds. That's how he responds to their hesitation. Now, someone who has a degree in business management, as someone who has directed camps and has had all sorts of experience of people and equipping people, Leadership 101 says don't push people too far. Be aware of people's insecurities and don't, don't give them something that they can't do because they will just give up. purely worldly perspective, it seems like a bit of a mistake. The thesis here isn't operating as a manager or as a boss, he's operating as a savior. There's two things to know about this passage, for the times when we hesitate, for the times when we are just uncertain what God is calling us to do, whether it's in a moment and it's a go and speak to that person situation, or whether it's a, a, a move, whether it's a job change, whether it's a relationship change, whether it's, whether it's are we called as a family to begin having children, whether it's two things. First is, he's not afraid of your doubt. He's not afraid of your hesitation. He's not concerned about your hesitation. Jesus doesn't show up and say, man, I had this really big thing I was going to ask you to do, but I don't know if you're ready. I didn't realize you were going to be this on the fence about it. I don't... Maybe we'll hold off on this. He's not, he's not caught off guard. He's not, offend, he's not offended. He's not angry. He, really, from the story Matthew gives us, picture he's painting for us, Jesus doesn't even recognize it, doesn't think twice about it. So the first thing we need to understand is that hesitation is going to come in our lives, in our faith, that there will be times when our, when our head and our hearts tell us to jump and our legs say, gives us the command anyway. And then the second thing is this. It's simple. No Greek. He doesn't end with the commission. He ends with this. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, the only thing bigger than all the world is all time. The only thing greater than the task that he has put before us is how much he will be with us. I'll say that one again. The only thing that's bigger than the task that God has put before you 
It's the level, the degree to which he will be with you through it. So no matter how overwhelmed you are, no matter how much you say, I have no idea how I'm going to do that. No matter how much you're afraid, no matter how much you just can't bring yourself to do it, however big what God puts before you, His faithfulness is greater. Because all time means even when even when the sun has exploded and the earth is no more, if God has not made it all new by then, even even millions of years, there'll still be a day after that He's still with us. His faithfulness will always be greater. His faithfulness will always extend beyond when you need it. It will never run out. I don't know what it is that you hesitate. For me, just this morning, getting up to preach. So I had three things that I worked through in this passage this week. One of them I spent a lot of time on, and then we're not talking about it at all. And then this morning and last night, I still had two. And then we went through worship practice, and I still had two. And I was sitting there while Isabel prayed, and I kept hoping she would pray longer. It was in that moment I realized. I don't have two messages because I didn't prepare enough. I didn't study enough. I don't have two messages because... I'm being irresponsible as a pastor. I have two messages because I need to believe this before I get up there. And I don't wanna I don't wanna get up here and, and share and talk when I'm not positive. I know at least what direction we're going, what town we're gonna land in. But I also know I need to believe my service before I preach. That was mine. That was mine today. And I'm sure I'll have five more by then. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's big or small. But he sees you more than he sees your hesitation. He sees you more than he sees your doubt. Whatever it is that he lays before you, his presence and his faithfulness are bigger stronger and will last far beyond. Let's go to prayer together. Uh, you know what? Give me a pianist. I don't care which one. It's like 20. We were joking in assembly yesterday morning. I lost count, but I think I went to the front along with many others, at least eight times in the four-hour morning session. I kept calling the pastors up to pray for this person, and then for that person, and then for four, and 
but we're going to just wear right through the carpet and my legs are getting tired. Let's take a minute to respond if you don't want anyone to leave this morning carrying something, carrying some burden that could have been left here. And I know we already had an altar call. We had a hundred of you up here. Now I'm, I'm hesitating. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, are in your presence, Lord, it was so easy for us to go back. It's so easy to hear clearly what we are supposed to do. So many things within us tell us to stay. So, Lord, if we, uh, if there's something in our hearts, if there's something you're calling us to that we are. sensing that hesitation, we are sensing that, that worry or that fear or that just inability to step out. And I pray that, pray that we are able to come to the altar and lay that before you. And we recognize, God, that maybe that feeling of hesitation is not going away. Perhaps that's something you need to call us to walk but Lord, I pray that if that hesitation is there, that the guilt is not. Let us be free from the shame that comes with hesitating to do what you've called us to do. We feel like we're not enough. We feel like there's something wrong with us, that there's something broken with us. Release us from that. Take that. Take that guilt and fear off of our shoulders. And Lord, give us the strength to jump when you call us to. But even if we, even if our steps falter, Lord, lift us up. Give us the strength and the power, even when our, even when our flesh is trying to hold us back to make it to where you're calling us go. We are all your workers, Lord, called to do your works. We are all called to mission. We are all called to serve. We are all called to love. Above all, when we sense hesitation, legs freeze and don't want to move. Let us not be so discouraged in ourselves that we just turn around and go home. Let us not be so discouraged that we say, God, I, I am hesitating, I am holding back, I can't do this. Father, find someone else. Lord, may that not happen.
let us see it for what it is, simply something to work through, something to push through, something to just... Something that'll go away the more we're obedient. The more we... The more we run up to the puddle and stop, go back and try it again, run up and stop, the bigger our fears get. But the more we leap, the more we leap even if we fall, the easier it is to jump next time. So may we be people who leap. May we be people who go from go down from that mountain with this great this overwhelming, this over-the-top, this unattainable commission to say we're going to jump. And God's going to get us there. God's going to pull us through. Father, you, you are the strength. You are the power. We don't know how and everything within us, everything that we've grown up to understand and about our world and the way things work, it's all telling us that this can't, this can't be true. This can't be possible. It will never happen. But you, Lord, say, I am and I will. And we rest in that. We rest in that, Lord. And we trust you. celebrate today as a church as we prepare for what you're calling us for as, as we celebrate with, with the beavers and their next adventure that you're calling them to as we as we meet this afternoon to discuss our uh, upcoming children's ministry in BBS as we engage in fellowship as we study your word and as we go back Whatever our lives hold this week, Lord. May we be people who leap out in faith in spite, in spite of our hesitation. We follow you. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in your name. Amen.